Business Women Rock. Holy cow, we're at episode 34 already. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible business women. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. What's up, ladies? Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast. I am so very happy that you're here today. I have a great, great story for you today. Lots of legal stuff today, so um, it's going to be very, very interesting. It's not the boring side of legal. It's the very interesting side of legal, which is really cool. Anyway, before we get into that, um, just want to let you know that when you are listening to this, I will have just come back from what I call a Katie retreat. Um, I'm actually doing this recording. I usually like to do these intro recordings like literally the day before that these go live so that they're really up to date and, you know, everything's all current. But um, this one I'm actually pre-recording because I am going to be headed out to a little getaway weekend for myself. So every, probably about once a year, twice a year, something like that, I take what I call a Katie retreat. And it's a time when I literally just kind of go off on my own. I pretty much like turn off my computer, turn off my phone. Uh, I leave my husband and my birds at the house. And I either drive down to the Keys for, you know, a quick weekend or just kind of just go hang somewhere by myself. And it's usually a chance for me to really dig in and just make sure I'm really centered, make sure I just really give myself that opportunity to be really quiet with myself and make sure that everything that I'm so busy running around doing every single day is still in line with who I truly am and what I truly want. And um, and so this weekend is my weekend to have a nice little Katie retreat and just make sure that all the stars are aligned and make sure that uh, that I just, you know, am just really plugged in. So I love doing that for myself. I've, I've really been able to take so many of these lessons from these just kick-butt women who have been on the show, and so many of them speak exactly to that, which is really just make sure that you're taking time for yourself. Make sure that you're able to unplug sometime. So I'm implementing that this weekend, and I'm very excited for that. So by the time that you hear this, I will have gotten back from that, and I'm sure I'll have some good stories to tell you and some... Uh, a uh, really good insight as to how powerful a weekend away with yourself can really be. So let's get on with the show. <laughs> Michelle Bomberger is the founder of Equinox Business Law Group, which is based out of Seattle, Washington. And she has built her business doing everything almost the exact opposite as other business law firms. And her two major foundational elements that make her so unique is, number one, that she really sees herself as a business resource who just happens to provide legal services. And number two, that she actually has a flat fee-based business model. She goes into both of those elements very in-depth, and she's kind enough to go through an entire Q&A with us about legal things that every businesswoman needs to know. So... Turn up the volume. The interview starts now. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for the invitation. 
I'm really excited to talk to you today because your story from the outside looks like, you know, your very typical law firm and oh joy, you're an attorney and you've created your own law firm, which is very, very bland. But when you start digging down, you have a very distinctive approach to how you do law and how you bring that to the business community. And I, so I really want to have a conversation with you, not only about your business journey, but also what your experience has been like working with business owners and honestly, your legal knowledge and being able to share that topical information with everyone today. So in order for us to really get to know you better and to understand your business journey, I really want to start where you grew up. You have a pretty unique story in the sense that you grew up in Panama. Can you explain a little bit about what that was like and maybe what sort of foundational elements that that really solidified for you as a person? Yeah, it it was really a unique blend of a very large American community and the local Panamanian community. You had really strong American roots in the Zonian group, which are the people who grew up in the Canal Zone, held by the United States at the time. And outside of that, you had the local native Panamanian culture. And so the two things blended together quite a bit. Because of our distance from home, many of us grew up in Panama, had been there for you know, multiple generations, but we were still U.S. citizens and the U.S. was still home. Because of that distance, our, our friends were our family. So we had really, really close relationships with friends. You know, all of our Thanksgivings and our Christmases and other events were around this, this community that became, you know, aunts and uncles by default. And so we had a really close-knit group. And the Zonian community, there's a lot of pride around being a part of that unique demographic. Along those same lines, you do learn a whole lot about different cultures. And Panama is really an international area, international banking and shipping. And so you had a little bit of everybody, very much a melting pot. So you really got exposure to different kinds of people growing up there. So it was really, I would say, such a unique place to be with some of that American and some of that international really blended together. And is there a certain, maybe a scenario or an instance or story that you could tell that might give us a little bit of insight to kind of what kind of businesswoman you really are and what sort of characteristics you bring to the table? From a business standpoint, you know, as you mentioned, you know, law firms have their essential expectations around how they operate. There's a tradition there and there's a history there that people generally default to. My approach is very much a business-centric approach. So my background is primarily in business. And I look at what I'm doing here not as a law practice or a law firm. I look at it as a business first that happens to provide legal services. And so the way we operate is a little bit different. And I think coming to own my own company, owning my own law firm, without a lot of what I call law firm baggage, I haven't really worked in a law firm traditionally very much, I really have a unique perspective and a unique approach that is focused truly on what a business wants and needs. And I think that's the foundation of our story and our success. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what Equinox actually is, like how you provide services, how you really differentiate yourself in the market? Like, can you give us just kind of an overhaul of your firm? Sure. At our core, we're a law firm that provides legal services to businesses. Again, as you mentioned, not all that sexy, not all that really unique or interesting. However, we believe that legal counsel should be practical, should be responsive, should empower clients with more information, not kind of holy grail up on the marble pedestal, be 
more transparent, offer less complexity. Business owners typically don't call lawyers because they're afraid that the lawyer's going to make it cost more and it's going to take longer and it's going to be more complicated. But lawyers have kind of created this. The billable hour model and the lack of approachability encourages people to wait to the last possible minute to call and say, hey, could you do this as quickly as possible, spend the least amount of time on it, and get it out the door? What ends up happening then is, is that we raise issues at the last minute instead of at the front end that then make it more complicated, make it take longer, make it be more expensive. So it's just this self-perpetuating circle. With our model, we try to use fixed fees as much as we can. We have an outside, typically is thought of as a retainer model for outside general counsel. Businesses have unlimited access to our team for a fixed monthly fee. And really the goal there is to encourage conversation. It's to encourage deeper insights to what the business is doing. So rather than being brought in at the tail end to simply put the stuff on paper, we're part of the front-end planning. And by being a part of the front-end planning, we can raise the, the risks and the issues that we see as part of strategy and then implement them later. So we're not the ones throwing a wrench into the deal at the last minute, which is really what, what commonly happens when lawyers are brought in late. They raise issues that no one else really thought of, and then they have to go back to the drawing board and start over. So that's one of the core pieces of who we are and what we do. Our lawyers also have business operations experience, and so the conversations we're having are really around the goals and objectives of the company. So they come and they say, hey, we're thinking about doing this partnership deal. We can have conversations about, well, what are we trying to do here? What is this person's role? And think through what are the reasonable alternatives and then what's the right path for this business. By having business people first who are lawyers second, the conversations are different and that's valuable to our clients. So I think that's really interesting. I mean, obviously, you're very cognizant about the fact that the folks that you're bringing into your firm like, have they all owned their own companies before, or are they just really business trained in some sense? Or what are you looking for when you're hiring on team members? Takes a couple of different perspectives, I guess. My background is big company and then entrepreneur. Uh, we've owned my husband and I have owned restaurants, and then I've owned my own firm, and so I think that that gives me a lot of credibility with our clients. Our other attorneys have either worked in small businesses from an operation standpoint or big businesses from an operation standpoint. It's actually more challenging than I. I guess I would have thought to find attorneys that have that deep business experience, that knowledge and understanding of how a business operates so that we can then look more holistically at what the companies, even the small companies, they still have an HR function, whether or not it's a person or a department. So being able to ask the questions about, well, how are you handling these issues? Because you, Mrs. Entrepreneur, are wearing all the hats, but we can still have the conversations with them because we have that big picture of how a company works. And even a baby company still has these same functions. They just don't think of them that way. So I want to dig in a little deeper to the other differentiator that you had talked about, which is a fixed pricing model. Your clients paying into a retainer and being able to have full-on access to you for whatever that they need. That is not a typical model. And you know there, there are a handful of, of attorneys that I know who do that, but it's very not typical and it's not expected from the client. So can you talk a little bit about what the reaction was from potential clients in the market when you first came to market and you were first talking about this idea and that's what your business model was going to be? Like, what was the reaction and what did you notice? What happened in the marketplace? Well, there's a very steep education process that has to occur. Generally, people come at this with, well, what's the catch? You know, well, where's the overage charges? And you kind of have to experience it, I think, in order to really, you know, they have, to have a lot of trust 
and then they have to experience it to really understand how it works. We've actually found that companies, uh, businesses that have experience working with lawyers take to it better than those who don't because they understand what a traditional relationship looks like and then you've got the billable hour and the tick-tock, tick-tock of the clock all the time, the unpredictable fees. People who've experienced that tend to look at our solution and go, wow, that would be amazing. So we launched this in 2009 when we did a whole firm rebranding, and it was part of our building of our brand. We really wanted to offer something that served businesses on their terms. And a lot of companies out there that are doing outsourced CFO on a fixed fee or outsourced HR on a fixed fee, well, you know, why not outsource legal on a fixed fee? And one of the reasons why it's not very prevalent is because lawyers, by training and maybe even by nature, are risk-averse. And the question that I usually get from lawyers is, how do you do that? Because what if the transaction came up that you didn't know about? Or what if this big issue came up that, that you didn't predict? Well, that's a risk that we take. And so we know that there's variability in the workload, but there is consistency in the revenue. So there's a trade-off there. And we have to be pretty good about pricing the services so that overall it makes sense for both parties. So when... 2009 was probably a great time to launch it because we were in the middle of the Great Recession and very few professional services businesses in general, law firms specifically, were spending a lot of money on marketing. And so it was an opportunity for us to get this information out there and to begin talking to people about it, even though people weren't buying it. And so we had a couple of years of educating companies, educating our colleagues, our partners, prospective customers on this solution. And just in the last year, year and a half, we've seen more traction. So uh, from a back office standpoint and from sort of an interior experiential standpoint, for you as a business owner, how have you managed that process? You know, you talked about we got to be really careful with our pricing, but can you give us some realities of what that risk percentage actually is? Like you're giving your clients the potential to use you any way that they see fit or anything that possibly comes up for this regular amount every single month, what percentage of folks actually ha- like kind of utilize and overutilize the amount that they're paying in on, I don't know, a monthly basis? Very few. It's easy to think, well, they're going to call you all the time, but I'm not top of the list of people they're going to call every morning. So very few create that kind of a problem. We had one client about two years ago that was new general counsel client, and we do know that there is more risk in the first couple of months. But because of the learning curve, because of the volume of, of pent-up projects that need to get done, we usually end up doing more work in the first couple of months rather than, rather than further down the line. And with this client, within the first six weeks, I think we used up what, if you use the word used up, the entire kind of six-month projection of the fees. And that was it's the only time that I'd gone, okay, we may have a real problem here. And so I called the client and I said, I just want to understand what you foresee this looking like over the next few months. Is it going to stay at this level of activity? I would never change the agreement we had. I'm just trying to plan for resources and to understand you know, what we're dealing with. And they were in the process of trying to raise money. And they said, you know, if we get the money, we, we expect even more volume and we're happy to revisit the pricing. But right now, this is where we are. And, you know, it turned out that it tapered off over the next three to four months, and they stayed on that plan for two years to the point where they ended up switching gears, splitting up, going separate ways. But 
that relationship is still really, really strong. So by kind of sticking with our values, sticking with our commitment, and simply having that open conversation about where we were in the relationship, it really made a difference. The two things that we do is we revisit the pricing every six months. So the exposure is limited. If some big transaction shows up, we can say, okay, well, the next six months we anticipate ramping up because of this big deal. So we're going to have to you know, raise it for that period. Or oftentimes when they come on board, they have all kinds of pent-up demand. And then after that, they're kind of in maintenance mode, and so we bump it back down. So every six months we revisit the pricing. Got it. Now, what is your life cycle rate? Like, uh, you know, how long is your average client staying? Well, our, you know, our goal is to be their counsel for as long as the business is active. And so we want to be there for the entire business life cycle. Um, a business life cycle can be two years and it can be 200 years. It just kind of depends. So we really want to be that advisor that they come to throughout the business's life for everything from the the formation and the startup process to hiring employees and, and signing contracts with landlords, building out their geographical presence, and then ultimately, and, and again, the conversations we have are really around, well, what is our exit plan? How are we going to transition this business in the future? And our 20-something people, some of them have that two-year, I'm going to build this, I'm going to get out. But a lot of them, you know, they're going to keep operating it for 40 years or 50 years, and I don't know what my exit plan is. But there should be something in your mind to be thinking about what is that. And we want to be a part of that. So the, the tenure is really very long-term. We have some clients that you know, we don't talk to for two or three years. And we don't do actual work for We actually talk to our clients every year if we possibly can. We have a, a regular follow-up process. But we don't do substantive work for for a couple of years. And then they come back and they've got something new happening. Um, so it really depends on the size of the business and the level of activity they have. But it really is a long-term relationship. I love that. And I'm dig I'm digging so deep because I just I love this idea of a business model. We have that the same type of relationship with our CPA because when we first got into business, I knew that I didn't know everything I needed to know about the accounting portion, the taxes portion, everything like that. So I knew that I needed somebody to be able to call and I truly just did not want to worry about somebody on the other end tracking minutes that I'm that I'm speaking to them. And they were really great with us because we were a total startup business at that time. And we have continued six years now with this company because they're just available. It's something I don't understand, something that even I should get, but I don't. And I need them to explain it to me. Anything from the most elementary stuff to some really sophisticated strategy planning. And they're just there. And I just am such a proponent of the type of business model that you have. And I love the attitude that you take towards it as far as really being a part of their business and being part of that sort of power team that the leader of the company is really leaning on to, to be able to grow the company. So, but I want to get into a little bit more about you as a businesswoman throughout these years of running this company. Can you tell us maybe one or two major lessons that you've learned in building this company? Oh, there's probably so many. Um, <laughs> probably the, the most dominant thing is that is not something that's taught, maybe it can't really be taught, but I think it's the most important skill a business owner can have and needs. As I've grown the firm, and you know, we're still small, there's only five of us, but going from two to three and then going from three to five, the amount of time and effort and, and true attention, personal attention that needs to be spent on 
understanding each person's drive, each person's motivation, each person's passion. You don't really think that you need to do that initially. At least I didn't really see that. And it's absolutely critical. There's a lot of discussion right now in the business publications around you know, employee disengagement, and 70% of employees are disengaged. It's a very high number. But I think a lot of it really does come to passion and, and leadership and paying attention to what is going on in your organization. So I think that's, that's the first one that I would not have expected. And then the second one I think would be the idea of having really clear goals. You know, we talk about a business plan and we talk about, you know, building out your financials and what do you want to do over the next five years and you know, what's your big, hairy, audacious goals. But really having something that you're working toward and whether that's financial or whether that's something softer like brand recognition and credibility, having something that everyone can rally around, I, I think is the foundation for momentum in the organization. So the first few years, you know, you kind of throw it at the wall and hope it sticks. And once we rebranded in 2009 to our Equinox name and we had a real core sense of building out this innovative solution for businesses, I think we really got some momentum around what we were trying to do and whether, you know, that's a kind of start with why, Simon Sinek start with why concept. But it gets people rallied around why they're there. It gets the company grounded in measuring it. I love that. And I couldn't agree with you more on that. I think it's very, very powerful to have that. Have there been any books along the way that you have read and have really made an impact on how you show up to your company? What kind of leader you are? What kind of, you know, attitude you're taking towards growing your company? I feel like I'm, I'm learning all the time. I mean, it's one of those things that I think the last two years really has been very much the biggest learning experiences that I've had in this business. I just read Simon Sinek, Leaders Eat Last, which has been kind of a great help in continuing that focus because as we are focused on growing revenues and growing the company, I think it's easy to focus on the numbers. And even though people buy into those numbers, you really need to understand the underlying people issues that go along with that. So to me, both Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last were exceptional books for insights to me as, as a business owner. I laugh because I usually read before bed and business books put me to sleep. <laughs> I, um, I, I could read a novel for an hour, but two or three pages of a business book and I'm out. So I've taken to doing Audible and just listening to business books while I'm in transit between client meetings or whatever. And it's been really such a valuable addition for me. There are a, number, a handful of things that I listen to. I listen to uh, TED Talk podcast. I listen to HBR's IdeaCast and then, you know, business books as they come up. And it's, for the most part, wasted time otherwise sitting in the car. So it's a great, a great way for me to absorb the business content that kind of keeps you thinking, which is important. I totally agree with you. And I'm such a huge proponent of, of the audiobooks. And what a perfect way for me to be able to give a little bit of a plug for audible.com, by the way, all of our listeners, you can actually go to bizwomenrock.com and go into the show notes for Michelle 
or go to bizwomenrock.com forward slash perks and you can actually get your very first audiobook through Audible for free. So you didn't even know that. Thanks for setting me up for that, Michelle. <laughs> we have a great relationship with Audible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we are we're listeners of audio and so it's just such a perfect relationship. And I, I'm definitely a huge person who loves audiobooks and Audible is just a great resource for that. So I want to ask you about your kind of attitude about giving back. You are very big about giving back. You're you're very involved in your local Center for Advanced Manufacturing and with Seattle University's Entrepreneurship Center. Can you talk a little bit about your attitude about giving back and what that really fulfills for you? I think that, you know, education um, and entrepreneurship education, I think, is is really important. And connecting with the business community is is a kind of a second, I think, importance. Really understanding what are the dynamics amongst the, the the players in the community, so that you can build everybody together. And the Seattle U program was really working with students on a client services basis. So a law student, a business student, are paired with a company, and over the course of a quarter or two quarters, they work with that company to address some of the needs both on the business side and on the legal side. And it's really fantastic because it allows the legal students to see what the business students are doing and vice versa. They typically don't get in their in their education, not to mention the hands-on client service. And if you've never been in a client service environment, working with clients and helping to gauge from them what their needs are can be really challenging. But what this, this program also does is it pairs a business mentor from the business community and a lawyer mentor with the team as well. And so we get to work with them on the challenges that they might be having in either creating the deliverable or even just this client service environment. So that's how I got involved with Seattle U. And it's such a rewarding program to work with the students and as well as meet some other professionals in, in the business community. The Center for Advanced Manufacturing Puget Sound, I got involved with about five years ago as it was coming to fruition, and it's a group of manufacturers in the South King County area, but covers the entire Western Washington region, really with a focus on networking and education, and and manufacturers tend to be very insular. They don't come out and meet other manufacturers. A lot of them are engineers, very introverted, but this organization has brought together CEOs of local companies, and rather than the focus being on how can you grow my business. It's really been a grassroots effort around how do we raise the image of manufacturing in the community? How do we work with educators and parents and business people and students to talk about what advanced manufacturing is? It's not manufacturing from 40 years ago. It is really cool and it is really sexy. This organization has a partnership with First Robotics, which which first actually starts at kindergarten, but all the way through high school, where there are these robotics competitions. And it is so fun to be involved in. And the business people, the manufacturers that are part of that group, are really engaged in a holistic effort around workforce development and manufacturing in the community. And it's been such a fun organization to be a part of. I've served on the board for the last few years, and I'm running the programs committee this year, just trying to get some great content, both from a professional services side as well as a cool manufacturing topic side. So I really enjoyed that as well. And then we as a, as a firm host an annual charity event benefiting Special Olympics of Washington. And that's grown each year. We do a, a kind of happy hour, light dinner, and silent auction. And then we sponsor one or two teams each year for specific needs they have. 
So last year, the Bellevue team had a van stolen that had all of their baseball and softball equipment in it. And so as part of the fundraiser, uh, we replaced that and got the new team jerseys and that sort of thing. And it's so rewarding to really serve our local community that way and to hear the stories of a lot of the Special Olympians as well. Michelle, I really want to take this moment to transition into more of a Q&A style of a conversation and have you be our legal advisor for this moment. So many businesswomen are listening right now, whether they themselves are running their own companies, about to start their own company, are just really rock star professionals who want to better themselves and want to know more information about business. So I want to ask you a couple of questions sort of from a business legal standpoint. And if you could give us some feedback on what this is, just so we can really educate everyone listening about what some of these steps are. So the first question I have is really starting at the beginning. So what are the necessary first steps that someone must legally take when they're starting a new business? Like what are the absolute must-haves? Because I think we're bombarded by there's so much to think about when you're first starting your your own business. And you know legal has to be a part of that. But you don't really know all of the ins and outs. Okay, yes, I got to set up my corporation. But like, what do you really need to know? Like, what's the kit that every starter business owner must do? So I'm going to do my my standard disclaimer here real quick. You know, every state is different. Every situation is unique. And so everything that I'm providing here is very general information. No one can take it and run with it and and say that they got legal advice. So that's my my quick and dirty disclaimer that I have to give. Spoken like a true attorney. um, Thank you. <laughs> okay, so go ahead. Uh, thank you. You mentioned setting up the company. I mean, the thing about setting up the company is there are multiple options. There's the sole proprietorship, and there's the LLC, and there's the corporation. And what it comes down to is you have to have a business license, a, a business license in your state that allows you to do business. Any of those choices get you a business license. So then the question is, which one is the right choice? And that's a, a heftier matter. Um, do you want liability protection for your personal assets? If so, you're looking more at LLC or a corporation. Who's going to be involved? Do you have outside investors? Are you going to be managing it or is someone else going to be managing it? And then tax is a huge part of that decision. So you absolutely need a tax advisor in that process. So bottom line, you need to have a business license, period. But the type of, of business structure you're going to use is going to depend on a lot of different factors. Remember also that whatever business choice you make, you really need to follow the legal guidelines around what's called corporate governance. Do you have to have annual meetings? Do you need to document those annual meetings? What do those annual meetings need to cover? What kinds of other records does the law require that you keep? Generally speaking, a sole proprietorship doesn't have to do much at all simply because it's an extension of your person. You're not buying liability protection. It is simply an extension of you doing services for someone else. Whereas when you get into an LLC and a corporation, the formalities for corporate governance are much more significant, but you're also getting that liability protection. So make sure that whatever choice you make, you understand what those formalities are and you do them. Because that is the easiest way for someone to come in and say, oh, well, you weren't actually doing what you were supposed to do, so we're not going to respect that liability protection that you thought you had. So corporate governance is a really important part, and it's easy for people to say, oh, I'll just do an LLC, I'll just go ahead and set that up. Understand what that means, and understand that it is, it's got to be treated differently than simply an extension of your bank account. So that's one thing. Another thing to remember is that city licenses are also necessary, and in most places, you have to get a city license for everywhere that you 
do business. The definition of that is going to vary city by city, state by state, but be aware that if you are performing services in multiple cities, that you may need licenses in all those cities. Now, does that mean uh, where your you're EI- performing services, or does that mean like that you're you're having people participate in your services from another city? Uh, where you're performing services generally. Got it. Let's say you do an event in one city, and then you go to another city and do an event over there. That's where it would classify. Depending on the city's rules on what qualifies, but yes. So if you're a, a lawn maintenance company and you travel throughout the county visiting multiple cities, each of those cities are going to have different requirements as to what kind of license you may need. Got it. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And then your your employer identification number from the IRS, this is something that ties your business license at the state level to your federal taxes. And so the EIN is typically asked for by your bank. The alternative is to provide your social security number. You really want to separate those two things and have an EIN for your business that tracks it separately. And so that's an easy thing to get. Just try to make sure you get that. And then you had mentioned earlier the accountant. And I really think having your full team, but your accountant specifically on board early on so that they can help you make decisions around which of these entity choices makes the most sense for your business given your plans from a tax standpoint. But then also in setting up things like, well, how much money am I going to take out and how often am I going to take it out? How do I set up my QuickBooks or whatever software I'm using to manage my business expenses and my business revenue. What does that look like? And so I think the the accountant is a really critical person to have on board. The rest of your team, you should have a, a relationship with a banker, an insurance broker, uh, maybe a financial planner, but really make sure you've got that, that core group of people from the outset. That's great. Excellent advice. What are the two biggest mistakes that businesses make legally? I would say the first one is not using formal contracts. A verbal contract is completely enforceable in most situations. There are exceptions when a written contract is required, but in most small business situations, verbal contracts are perfectly enforceable. But the problem is is that if there's a dispute, you have nothing to fall back on as to what was agreed. It's a he said, she said issue. Remember, what written contracts do is they, they lay out the expectations of the parties, and what we're going to do if it falls apart. So the best time to do this is when you're starting to work together, when you guys are excited about working together and making lots of money together. That's the time to put this in place. Do it early and be as clear and unambiguous as possible in your contract. A lot of businesses are afraid that they put a contract in front of someone, that person's going to be scared away. I think the opposite is actually true. I think it makes it look like you've got your act together and you have the ability to then say, you know, here's, here's the rules of engagement that I have, and here's why this makes sense. You should be able to also go through that contract and explain what it says. So it, it should not be something, well, my lawyer drew this up, and I really don't know what sections 12, 14, and 16 say. You should be able to walk through it. So make sure that you have something that makes sense, is balanced, and isn't going to make someone run away. It should be an agreement, not one person bulldozing the other. So don't be afraid of contracts. The second one is not thinking through the risks and legal implications of decisions. Many, many business decisions are not a legal versus illegal scenario. It's a question of risk. So, you know, for example, you get a great opportunity for the biggest contract that you ever had for your business. Super excited. And then they send you a, you know, 20-page contract. You may be perfectly willing to sign that regardless of what it says because the opportunity is greater than any risk that could be even 
foreseen in that, in that agreement. This isn't a legal issue. It's a risk-based issue. I'm willing to forego or live with the risks in this contract because the opportunity is so great. But there are some areas that it's not a, really a risk decision. It's a legal versus illegal decision. And a couple of areas that business owners don't realize will get them in trouble and get them in trouble pretty quickly. The first is employment law. Don't assume that because something is logical, it's legal. It, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. <laughs> um, in, in the employment context, there are so many ways to misstep. You really need to have an HR professional or an attorney involved when you have employees. The second area is securities law. So if you're looking at bringing on outside investors, we hear this all the time. Oh, Uncle Joe's going to give me you know, $20,000 and I'm going to give him 2% of the company. If the person is, is simply a passive investor, that is a highly regulated area of the law. It's governed by the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission at the federal level, and then every state has different rules around it. And because we hear it so often, people generally think that it's no big deal. You just you know, put something on paper and you move on. But there's a real risk in those scenarios that you really want to be careful about documenting that clearly, getting counsel. So those are the areas that I think are, are the, the biggest missteps that small business owners come across. What about independent contractor versus employee? This is a pretty common conversation for a lot of small business owners, especially because the cost of bringing on an employee is definitely different than the cost of bringing on an independent contractor. But can you talk about maybe the pros and cons or you know how, or how are you to, to make the best decision from a legal standpoint? This is a great question because many businesses do choose to call their hired help contractors because it's easier than dealing with employees, it's less expensive, and there are so many regulations and reporting that go along with hiring employees. But because of this default that many businesses take, the taxing authorities, the IRS, and in Washington, the Employment Security Department, the Labor and Industries Department, have become very, very, very aggressive in, in audits. They know this is an easy way for them to go in and take all of those people that have been classified as contractors and say, oh, sorry, those people were employees, and here's your bill for your penalties and your back taxes that weren't paid. It's really a very timely area to pay attention to. A contractor is an expert brought in to do something that you generally don't do. To be a contractor, the person hired must be kind of running their own business or affiliated with an existing company that does this for a living. So, for example, in my company, if I need to have new collateral materials developed, I'm going to hire a graphic designer, or I'm going to hire a web developer, that's not something that our firm does or knows how to do. So the person that I'm bringing on do this for a living for other people, and so they're kind of a classic contractor. However, where we've seen a lot of areas that have been audited is fitness centers and yoga studios, where the studio their sole purpose is to provide yoga classes, and all of their instructors are classified as contractors. There's a much higher hurdle to cross in calling those people contractors rather than employees. So the contractor must have their own business, so having a business license independently of your facility, not do the work that, that you do. Now, if you run the studio, it may very well be that you don't actually do the classes. You're not certified to teach yoga, so you bring in outside people to do that. And they do it for lots of other facilities. 
you shouldn't be training them or telling them how to do their job. If you're telling them how and when and where to do the work, they're going to look a lot like an employee. They're not going to look like someone who's an expert who's being brought in on a case-by-case basis to do something for you. Having a written contract stating that the person is a contractor isn't usually sufficient. It's a, it's a benefit, and you should have that, but it's not going to be sufficient in most cases to say, oh, well, I have a contract saying they're a contractor, so there we go. They're going to look at all of the facts and circumstances. The IRS has something like a 25-point test that's a case-by-case facts and circumstances, so you kind of look at it and say, well, what do you think? In Washington, our Department of Labor and Industries has a six-point black and white test. They either meet those six points or they don't. And if they come in and audit you and the people that you're calling contractors don't meet those six points, they'll reclassify them as an employee and give you the penalty and the taxes. So when in doubt, the person's an employee. That's the safest way to go. But if the person truly is providing services that are not core to your business, make sure you cover your bases on, on the documentation. But contractors make sense in those situations. My last question to wrap this Q&A portion up is dealing with online businesses. Online businesses are more and more popular. There's a ton of them. Can you share with us some of the maybe unique legal issues that surround those types of businesses and things that anyone who's interested in starting an online business or has an online business, what, what we should know? Online businesses have a lot of different facets. So you, you take a spectrum from someone who is selling a product through Amazon's portal compared with a Facebook, for example, right? Very, very different online businesses. So the issues depend on the activities performed. But some of the key issues is if there's any information from users being shared with the company, let's say they are filling out a, a information form and submitting it, they're, they're giving you some information. If those types of interactions are occurring, you really need a privacy policy that, that addresses what you do with that information or what you don't do with that information and how you protect it. If there's any user interaction through an account or through a, a chat forum or someplace where people are communicating with one another, you really should have a terms of use. What that does is it sets forth the rules of engagement on the site. Lots and lots of people just grab these from someone else's website. But it's really important to know what your site is doing and what protections you need and then what you're willing to commit to. These documents, I know we've all seen them and we usually skip to the bottom and press I agree. Some people do read them, just so you know. <laughs> but they, they address things like data security, rights to copyright, takedown policies if, if someone is posting something that's inappropriate for the site. Those are different site by site, and you may not be willing to commit to the same things that someone like Facebook does, right? So you want to really know what your document says and make sure that it's something that makes sense not only for your business but for your audience. Those policies really must kind of reflect what you do and, and be consistently applied. Another area is online contests. We're seeing a lot more contests being done by different companies, either through their Facebook pages or through their websites directly. Rules for contests differ across states. In some states, they're illegal entirely. And so you want to make sure that you have not only the legal rules set up properly, but the uh, infrastructure and procedures to monitor who is eligible, whether they can be eligible, and then documenting that really well. 
And then I guess the third area that would be kind of a hot topic is the online taxation. It's getting very, very complicated if you're selling goods online. There are definitely services that update the tax rates so that states that that do tax services versus don't tax services, and then even down to the city level, it is becoming, again, pretty complicated. So you want to make sure you're doing that right. And it's not really something that I think the average seller can do on their own. Mm. I guess those are the areas that I see most, most activity right now. Michelle, tons of great information. I really want to thank you so much, first and foremost, for sharing so much about your story and your evolution as a businesswoman, and then definitely this Q&A about legal aspects that people really need to know about in business, such really, really good stuff. If you're in the Seattle area and you're interested in legal services, what is your web address? We are at equinoxbusinesslaw.com. So go check her out. If you're listening and you're not in Seattle and you just want to find out more about Equinox and how the business structure actually works, just from a kind of a foundational business perspective, go check them out. Michelle, you and your team are just doing some really great stuff. And I really want to thank you so much for sharing your story and for giving us great legal information today. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Remember that you can get all of these show notes on bizwomenrock.com forward slash 34, as well as the direct link to (laughs) audible.com that Michelle so perfectly plugged for me, that you, just for being part of this community, can get a absolutely free audiobook. If you got a nugget or two from this interview, then I would so appreciate you sharing on social media. Let everyone know about this podcast. Let everyone know about this amazing community. I love spreading the word and I love, love, love that you're here. Thanks so much. I'll see you on the next episode. Hey, you still here? So just a little background that Michelle was actually referred to me by Andrea Houston, which was our guest on episode 10. I just love that great women stick together. Rock on.